in a world where everyone knows everything. <laughs> yeah, right. One dad stands below everyone and yells, I know nothing. Please welcome. Please welcome. This is the Dad Who Knows Nothing podcast. All right. Welcome, everyone. This is the Dad Who Knows Nothing podcast. I am so honored to have Christopher Pellegrini with me today. He's coming all the way from Tokyo, Japan, and he's got a unique story, a unique background, a unique journey that takes him to where he is today, which is a shochu and awamori expert. And we're going to talk about what that is. He's also an author, podcast host, and he's a diehard Tokyo Swallows fan. And he launched Hankanku Spirits in March of 2020. I said that right. I didn't butcher it. Gave me today. That was good. All right. And uh, so really unique guest today. Uh, We don't, I don't talk to many people from Tokyo. So this is really cool. He's from America originally from the United States, uh, but just a fantastic journey that I want to talk about today. So, so happy to have you with us today, Christopher. Thank you very much for having me. It's a it's a great pleasure for me. All right. So my my guest, you should know that he woke up today. It's 7 a.m. right now in Tokyo, but he woke up for you to talk to you about Shochu and Aramori. So Christopher, how'd you end up in Tokyo? How did this how did this journey begin and get you to where you are now? Uh the abridged version is I followed a girl. Oh, well, that's always the that's always the story, right? That's, <laughs> In that's a lot it. of ways. Can't go wrong. That's right. And uh, but the slightly longer version, well, I'll finish the abridged version. So I was living in South Korea. I was working in South Korea. Boy meets girl. Girl really wanted to live in Japan for a year. So boy was like, sure, that sounds like fun to me. So I followed her here. And what was initially a one year plan became two years and then Two years became five and five became a mortgage and and we've been here for 20 now. So, and yes, we're still together. Anyways, that's the abridged version. Um, the reason why it worked out, why we are still here two decades later, is that I, over the course of my lifetime, have turned myself into a pretty intense alcohol geek. And that started with a... A, no, it wasn't AP, a regular U.S. history class in high school where a good friend of mine were in a group where we were supposed to create this newspaper that was in of a time. It was from, it happened to be the time when Prohibition started in America. So I was researching all this stuff. We had to write articles to create this newspaper from, you know, 70 years prior. And a lot of what was being written was about bootlegging. So we started to research all of the, you know, making your own bathtub gin, all of the, you know, the cat and mouse games, the rum runners, all that stuff. And uh, we very quickly abandoned the concept of making a newspaper and instead started making beer because we learned about it during the project. And for a couple of years, my good friend and I were, were making beer on a weekly basis, we had our own quiet little secret labels that we would put on bottles. We would go to the local uh, bar and pay the redemption on their heavy bar bottles to to buy them off them. 
mm-hmm. and bring them home, sanitize them and bottle our own beer. And of course, eventually that fell apart when my parents found out about the endeavor um, and they were not, we'll just say they were nonplussed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, six, how old was I at that point? Probably about 16, but I parlayed that experience into an apprenticeship at the local microbrewery. Fast forward another couple of years, we lose two our two top brewers. We lose our top brewer to a back injury. He can't lift heavy bags of grain. And our second brewer, we lose him to the damn circus because he wanted to be a clown. So he left the state of Vermont to move to New York City and try to join the Big Apple Circus. Didn't work out, apparently. Um, so he took that know, literally he, when someone said to him, do, do I make you laugh? Am I a clown? He, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I would have just... If he had asked me, I would have said, you're already a clown, man. You don't need to go to New York. Um, Good guy. Uh, He ended up leaving and that created a huge opportunity for somebody in the brewery. Lawrence Miller, the the president of the company, calls it all hands meeting and is like, does anybody in this joint know how to make beer? And little 17, probably 18 year old me was like, I do. And that was the beginning of my career as a brewer. Uh, I was too young to legally drink what I was making, but I was intensely proud of what I was doing because people would line up with growlers to fill fill up on stuff that I had made with my hands. You know, so I was really, really, really proud of that. I was really interested in learning more about this vocation, and it eventually led me to where I am today. I went into education after that, which is a very also another very important vein in my in my career and my journey, because everything's still about education. But I hopscotched to Spain and then I was in South Korea, Boy Meets Girl, that whole thing end up in in Japan. And when I was in Japan for the first time, only planning to be here for a year, I ran face first into Japan's indigenous spirits. And that was just that changed my life that quite literally changed my life um i was in education so i was after a while ended up being a university professor over i was teaching writing and research over here and in the meantime i was studying learning about this category of spirits that is about 600 years 500 600 years old and really only exists in Japan because it's so popular here. They don't make enough of it to really entertain or they didn't make enough of it to entertain international markets. Um, I can get into the, what those spirits are in a moment, but uh, while, while I was, you know, in education, I was an academic while I was doing that for many, many years, I was also cultivating this kind of side hustle where I was trying to get the word out about Japan's indigenous spirits and that's where we are today. I am still doing that, although on a much greater scale. Um, and things have, it's it, life, life is a, is a heck of a journey, man. It's, it's a lot of fun. That's all. That's what, I guess what I have to say about that. Well, I, I, there's so much in there to unpack. I mean, you have, you have career pivots, you have, uh, you know, being faced with, uh, rejection when your your parents were basically like yeah that's not what we had in mind for our 16 year old son and then <laughs> taking advantage be having the courage to raise your hand right when when the brewer uh when they needed somebody else to to try their hand at brewing beer now that's a wide jump from brewing beer to now being intensely 
interested in promoting indigenous spirits in Japan. So what is it about Sochu and Awamori that makes makes it so interesting for you? What 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 drew you to these spirits in Japan? All right. Yeah. All right, folks. So you hear it heard it here first. The the Japan's best kept secrets are some spirits classes, namely Shochu, S-H-O-C-H-U. And just if I may, I'm going to give a quick Japanese pronunciation lesson to everybody out there in the world. Great, I need Japanese. One. Japanese vowels are incredibly easy to pronounce. There's only five of them, and they don't change. It's not like American vowels that change depending on the other letters that are adjacent to them. A-E-I-O-U, all right? And just pronounce them as if they were Spanish or if they were Italian. Um, so A is A, E is E, I is E, O is O. And you is ooh. It pretty much it very similar to Spanish sounds. So if, for instance, you see the word W A S A B I, you know to pronounce that wa sa b, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. All right. If I show you, if I show you a brand here, that's T A K A M I N E. That's ta ka mi. Ne, right? That's it. And it's very easy in that sense. Learning the language is a, is a lot of work, I'll tell you. But just reading words accurately is actually quite simple. So shochu, S-H-O-C-H-U, shochu. And then awamori, as you said before, A-W-A-M-O-R-I. That's it. It's re really not any trickier than that. So if you stay true to those vowel sounds, you're going to be understandable about 99% of the time. So nice. what is it about Shochu and Awamori that I was attracted to? Let me be so bold as to say that Shochu and Awamori are the craft beers of spirits. And the reason why I say that is because they can be made with such a diverse range of ingredients, um, particularly Shochu. Awamori can only be made from rice by law, by tax law, and by the intellectual property rights, the protections ascribed by the WTO that protects a specific type of awamori that's only made in one region and you know it protects it in that way. Um, that can only be made from rice. But shochu can be made from 53 different base ingredients and they're pretty diverse. The most popular ones by sales are sweet potato, barley, and rice. But there are many other ones in there that can be used to make these drinks. And some of them are kind of weird, like water chestnuts are a permitted ingredient. Um, aloe is a per permitted ingredient. Yes, there is aloe shochu, and it smells and tastes like aloe, which is pretty wild. There's green tea shochu. There's, there's different types of kelp shochu. There's milk shochu. There's a bunch of ingredients that are approved. They are all regional um, products. They're all harvested or created regionally in different parts of Japan. And those are the only ingredients that you can use. Now, that diversity of aroma appears in the drinks because of the process of how these drinks are made. They are single pot distilled, single pot distilled. And for anybody who knows anything about whiskey or rum or gin or how tequila is made, you know that usually a still is used more than once. 
there is often what's called a stripping run and then there's a spirits run and the goal is first of all let me just say that in order to make whiskey you first have to make beer right you make beer you put it in a still you distill it you purify it in a sense you remove some of the aromas and flavors and you increase the alcohol that's the trade-off right you either can have high esters high character or you can have high alcohol you can't have both so it's a trade-off and what you do by distilling again is you go higher on the alcohol and lower on the aromas the esters the flavors that came from that fermentation from making the beer let's say uh, now, in most of the spirits world, they they go for higher alcohol. There's that's the trade they go for. And in in the whiskey world, they're gonna put it in a barrel anyway. That's where the flavor and the aroma is truly going to come from, right? From the wood, not from the fermentation per se. In Japan, they do it the exact opposite way. They do it the opposite way of everybody else in the world. Basically, they go high character. They want to be able to smell and to taste what happened during that multi-week fermentation and these are long fermentations they want if it's a sweet potato shochu they want to smell the spice and taste the earthiness and get the get all of that character from that sweet potato fermentation they don't want that to disappear and and have the trade as more ethanol so this is a very diverse spirits class because a sweet potato shochu presents incredibly differently from a rice shochu which right. is which is completely different from let's say a sesame shochu. They're they're so vastly different that they almost shouldn't be called the same thing. It's actually when I first met these drinks, uh, almost accidentally, uh, one night here in Tokyo many many moons ago, I was shocked that the bartender kept pointing to all of them and calling them shochu, shochu, shochu. I'm like, how are these the same thing? They mm. are so amazingly different. They're all clear, mostly. Um, they are clear spirits, but they still keep so much of that fermentation in the bottle. And another really interesting thing about the spirits class is there's no additives allowed. You can't, you can't, there's no mulligans. You, you have one single fermentation attempt or uh, distillation you've got a long fermentation that better be a delicious fermentation because you've only got one pass through a still and you can't add any sugars to it you can't add add any like body enhancers to make it taste better it's it's uh what you have is what you get proposition so it's taken generations for them to figure out how to do this well here in japan and they do it very well and these spirits are so good and so popular that they outsell sake in Japan. And they have mm -hmm. done so for over 20 years now on an annual basis. So it's a it's a part, it's an aspect of Japanese culture that is sort of hiding in plain sight. Everywhere you go in Japan, when you come and visit, you'll find shochu on every menu. You'll find it in every supermarket and on the shelf of every convenience store. But you rarely hear about these drinks outside of Japan. Um, to give you a, an idea of how much shochu is made in Japan every year, there's more. I'm going to put shochu and awamori together since they are kind of related classes of spirit. There's more shochu and awamori made in Japan every year than tequila in Mexico. Mm. By volume. 
Now, about two-thirds, or at least my numbers are from 2019, so it might have changed a little bit. About two-thirds of tequila leaves Mexico. It's exported. And the lion's share of that, of course, is shipped to the United States. Uh, it's less than one-tenth of one percent of shoju and awamori ever leaves Japan. It is really, it's really consumed here. And that's that for me is both a pity and a gigantic opportunity because I think that the world is going to love these drinks. Um, we have learned, we learned long, long, long ago that generally when Japan decides to do something, they do it quite well. And they've been doing these spirits for, you know, five, six centuries. So they've had a little bit of practice. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's so little. Why, why do you think, um, is that just because sake is more mass produced that, that there's been more of a market and more of an ability to have that ship out? Because you mentioned earlier that Japan, it's almost like they don't want it to be shipped out because they consume it. So they don't want to lose any of it because they're consuming most of it. There was that that certainly was a thing there while there was an ascension of shochu when it was breaking out of the southern islands where it's typically made and metropolitan markets around Japan were figuring out like, wow, this stuff that they drink down south is really good. It's almost like when bourbon had its day finally, yeah, you know, yeah. um, and at that same time, concurrently, sake was kind of on a downslope. It was it had this it had an image problem. It, it was an old man's drink. Mm. And it was um, every year that just less and less was being purchased off of the brewers. So they were making less and less of it. Uh, but at the same time, folks overseas, there was this diaspora, this Japanese diaspora. And this stretches back to the 70s. And uh, some of those folks around the world were opening Japanese related or Japanese themed or, or you know, sushi bars or restaurants or other food and uh, food and drink places and they wanted a little something from home so they were they were kind of they were pulling over case by case a, a little bit of sake back in the day um this goes back like i said to the 70s 80s and it what was initially a drip became more of a stream which became more of a a river and these days is a veritable torrent of sake producers looking outside to cultivate markets and educate the educate consumers and the shochu industry didn't need to do that. They were having such a fun time selling to the metro markets here in Japan. And, you know, let's, Tokyo's a big market. Let's think about Tokyo proper and the surrounding, right. um, the burbs. That's like 22 million people, depending on how you count. So these are massive markets that with, with just what felt like infinite upside, uh, at least back in the early aughts when, when shochu sales and awamori sales overtook sake sales domestically. Only recently has the shochu industry realized like, well, ooh, ooh, our the demographics are working against us here. We've got this aging population. Nobody seems to want to have kids anymore. Kids don't drink because um, they, have, they have smartphones. And I guess when you have a smartphone, you don't need liquid courage to slide into someone's DMs anymore. So <laughs> there's a lot less alcohol consumption these days. And so people are starting to look overseas and they're starting to try and figure out how that might work. They're starting to ask questions about what people in other parts of the world enjoy. 
And how could Shochu and Awamori be part of that conversation? Uh, so it's it's been a very recent mindset shift for much of the industry, not everybody. Um, and I think we're starting to see a point where resources are being pooled and and there's uh, concerted efforts to get the word out about Shochu and Awamori internationally. But it's in its infancy, this this migration of energy and resources. Got it. So uh, are these spirits ones that, um, because I just think of spirits in the United States, yeah, you'll, you'll have people that like to drink the whiskey and the bourbon, you know, straight. Uh, are these good for mixing into other things as well? Um, that's, that's mixed a, drinks? That's such a great question. The funny thing is that in Japan, they're not really, they're not really used in cocktails. Uh, they're spirits, but over here, if you go to a cocktail bar, cocktail bars in Tokyo tend to be fantastic at doing the, the classics. Mm -hmm. So you want an amazing Manhattan. You want a really good Cosmopolitan. You want a, a beautiful Negroni. Cocktail bars in Japan have you covered. And they will, make, they will make one of the best Manhattans you've ever had in your life. And they will do it exactly the same every time. And so you'll, you can go back there every day of the week and it'll be the exact same drink. It is precision in many cases, but they don't tend to use their indigenous spirits. They use Western spirits, which is really interesting. They, I mean, they, they stick to classic cocktails and that's how it's been for decades. Where the, where the mixing is coming in, where the cocktail quotient has been upped is in the United States because bartenders in the States are constantly innovating. They're constantly mm -hmm. turning the cocktail menu over and they will always want to do something brand new. So this huge category of spirits with all its diversity is a massive new toolkit that's arrived on a boat. And so, you know, if you've, if you've ever smelled sesame oil, and you imagine sesame oil being in liquid form, in a spirit form, in an incredibly old school traditional style from Japan, that could be a lot of fun to work into a, co mm -hmm. a cocktail somehow. So we're seeing a lot of mixing with our uh, the products that our company is bringing in and also the other products that are coming in through other importers and, and uh, being spread about by other distributors. The... I think that is going to be the path of least least resistance for a lot of folks in the states anyway in terms of in terms of where they're going to see shochu on a menu for the first time it probably will be in the context of a cocktail. Got it. You mentioned a negroni and you had you, you made my ears perk up. That's that's <laughs> my go-to. <laughs> is it okay yeah, yeah we we uh we have a couple of drinks that a couple of uh bottles in our portfolio which we recommend working into a negroni oh nice uh, very very different when you switch out the gin and mm -hmm. you, you bring in these shochu instead but different in a good way so yeah. there, there there's all different ways you can bend that that yeah. all well just the fact that there's 53 different ingredients that could be used it lends itself to endless, endless varieties of things that you could do. Exactly. Yep. All right. I want to kind of switch to now like business. Obviously you've, you've done stuff and you've done things here in the United States. Now you're, you've been in Japan for two decades. What would you say is the biggest difference between doing business in the U S versus Japan? That's, that's a, that's a 
very important question and it's something that I struggle with all the time um we have a team over here in Japan another team in the in the states and so I don't sleep a whole lot because I'm constantly working with one or the other and there's at least a 13 hour difference in terms of time zone so uh you know start the morning working with the Japan team uh switch over after dinner to the to the US team and if I'm lucky I get a few hours of, of shut eye in between uh the challenge is and this this is this is a whole rabbit hole right here let me tell you in terms of like trying to be authentic and trying to be true to yourself and all these other maxims that are that are thrown about in leadership books and things like that um the the style of communication the expectations of other people in a conversation and in a re relationship are so wickedly different that you really have to you do have to make a a choice between being true to yourself and being effective. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, I've I've had colleagues who are like, no, I'm not. I don't want to do. I don't want to do it that way because that's not that's not me. That's not how I work. I'm like, well, okay, then you're gonna fail. <laughs> They're not gonna. You're not gonna be able to do business in that way. That's just not how uh, things work over here. And I think. One one specific example, one simple example, it comes up all the time that I can give. Uh, my, the team in the U.S. will will is very you know approaches problems in a team related manner. It's very the organization is pretty flat in that sense, um, regardless of position. Ideas are coming from everywhere, and fortunately, we have a culture where, uh, in our business anyway, where people aren't afraid to uh, give their ideas, and they're not afraid to we. You know, nobody's really afraid to fail because they know that and they're they're welcome to own it uh, because as long as you were trying something that was within reason, it made sense, then, you know, you're not going to get slammed for it. Um, and one thing that comes up one, you know, you can imagine it probably comes up once in every two conversations, the something along the lines of, well, it doesn't hurt to ask. Right. Doesn't hurt to ask which is a very common way of thinking. You might as well just check, see if it's possible, ask them. In in the US, that can fly. That that makes sense. That doesn't sound unreasonable at all. However, that can cause a lot of problems in Japan. Just asking can be an issue because if something's already been decided, that means that a lot of stakeholders have bought in and come to the same they've they've reached consensus They've gotten all, everybody lined up. Everybody's all stakeholders are aligned and we've decided to proceed in this manner. And then if you try to come in and, and tweak it in some way and say, well, can we do, is it possible to also do this? Or can we, you know, that this is slow. Can we do it faster this way? That can ruffle a lot of feathers. And that is a good way to damage relationships in some instances. And so the, it's, it's interesting when, when the U.S. side wants something different or something to happen in a in a slightly through a different channel or or more quickly or in a different manner, when they want that to happen, how the information is filtered and presented on the Japan side, and then conversely, how clammed up the Japan side can be about asking for anything to be changed on the U.S. side because they just figure that it 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 does hurt to ask. You know that's that's where they're coming from. So it is a really really different way of communicating. Um, and the Japan side is much more context-based. You really do have to consider your relationship with other people, seniority levels, all sorts of things before you open your trap. 
Whereas in the States, there's, you know, in not in all situations, but in a lot of cases, people just feel a lot more at ease with saying anything to anyone, um, you know, within reason. And that is, that's just, you know, that's one of the small foundational, an understanding of that, those differences is just one of the small foundational building blocks of, of trying to get a, a global business uh, operating without too many kinks and too many swerves and too many neck sprains and that sort of thing. Um, but it's a, it's a character building experience. It's a, it's a, it's a education. Let me tell you every day I learn two or three or five new things that I'm not particularly good at. And that is partly is probably a function of me going from being a specialist where I was essentially a Japan designated ambassador for shochu and Aomori. And they sent me, they flung me all over the world to do tastings and, and try to brainwash people to now running my own company companies where I am a generalist now. Now I've gone from being the the drinks nerd to being like the guy who has to know a little bit about everything. I got to know a little bit about logistics and getting and developing products and um, packaging and having these these uh, you know this network of vendors where I can well I can get the boxes from here and I can get the caps from here mm. and we're gonna have this this printer do the labels and these are the bottles and we're gonna have them all show up at this time and we're gonna and then get the get the. the you know, communicating with Mitsubishi to get these damn containers and then fill a container and get it on a boat. And then, and then the relationship with the want with the distributors in the U S and managing all of that. So I've, I've really had to, at times I'm super focused on the details, but then a lot of times I just have to zoom out and, uh, and think big picture. It's very, I think it almost feels like there's a switch going left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain by the hour in my head. Um, it's a pretty wild experience, especially since, as I said, I'm a, I was an academic for 20 years, and and now all of a sudden I'm I'm a booze hound, <laughs> <laughs> trying to trying to teach the world about these about Japan's best kept secrets, basically. Um, yeah. So, in essence, what you described, you're you're an entrepreneur, right? You're you're wearing many now, hats, yes. and you're uh, right. you're trying to fulfill a lot of different roles and do it in the best way possible. Um, and when you were talking about the two different cultures and you know, that it's, um, it's no doubt, a, a we've kind of become that type of society here in the United States, probably because of, you know, that's, that's always kind of been the culture is to, is to question, to kind of challenge, um, you know, and whereas I've always looked at the culture of Japan, which I think, I think you would agree with as very deliberate in their decision-making, very exact with their process, very, um, risk averse. Yeah. Risk averse, but also precise. And yep. so, you know, you mentioned that before when it came to making drinks that they're always going to be the same because that, I think that's, that's such a great talent that they have. And that is such a part of their culture that yeah, if you question and say, well, Ken, I know you've made this decision, but can we do it this way? In their mind, I could see how it would come across as, hey, we've spent a ton of time on this and gone through our process and done this the way that we do it and mm -hmm. the way that we have success with it. So it's it's not just saying, can we do something different? It's questioning their process really, which uh, no, no doubt can ruffle some feathers. Yep, that's absolutely yeah. accurate. Yeah. All right, so tell me about Hankaku, Hankaku spirits. Hankaku so how did that spirits, get started? Yeah. Well, 
I said just a moment ago that I was a ambassador for the mm-hmm. for these spirits classes, and uh, that was that came about. I was you know I learned about shochu and aomori one day, and then I was fascinated by them. And I'm the type of guy who who does stick his hand up and w- just will will volunteer. And so I just decided, you know, this was 2003, and back in 2003 there was not a Wikipedia page for shochu. Um, you know, I, the only way to learn about these drinks was to go to the source and I worked in a brewery before. So I was like, okay, I got to go find some distilleries, huh? So I flew down South and I started knocking on doors. And this is before I spoke any Japanese, honestly, I just was, I just wanted to see. And most places told me to, to take a hike when, (laughs) when I figured out where the distilleries were. And there are a lot of them. Let's just take Kagoshima prefecture for one, which is on the Southern side of Kyushu Island. It's about the size of Connecticut. But it has 110 active sweet potato shochu distilleries. Wow. And so it's just this distilling paradise down there. And you, you know, you shake a stick and you hit three distilleries. Mm-hmm. So I was able to walk around and using uh an internet map, it wasn't wasn't like I didn't have a smartphone or anything, but using maps and asking questions, I could figure out, oh, there's an old distillery over here. So I'd go knock on the door and say, Hey, can I see? And they, of course, were like, Whoa, where did you come from? Um, and I was, I was, uh, not allowed in at first. Um, but after a lot of just keep going back and spending time in the community and getting to know the, the old guys at the, at the bar. And then eventually word got around that, Hey, there's a, there's this weird foreign guy who doesn't speak a whole lot of Japanese, but he means well, and he's harmless. So, uh, if you got some spare time, let him in. And eventually places did. And I, over a period of many years, formed some amazing friendships, um, learned most of what there is to know, I believe, about making shochu and um, the history of these drinks and their centrality to the culture, and then focused on getting the word out. And so I uh, started doing tastings and seminars and everything back in Tokyo. I figured I'd reach out to the the expat community, the foreign community here in Tokyo, because there's there's a lot of lot of us here. But what ended up happening was my events and my tastings were filled 90%, 95% with Japanese folks because they were, they wanted to hear about this um, cultural product from another perspective. And so I was like, wow, I'm, I'm teaching shochu to in Japanese to people who have never left Japan. This seems like it's, I'm not, I'm not really hitting my goal here. So then I started working on a book. And I, um, I also got certified as a shochu and awamori sommelier. It was probably one of the first non-Japanese to get that, that license um, back in 2012 or something like that. And I started working on the book, got the book published. It's called The Shochu Handbook. Um, and it is available online um, if you want a further introduction to these drinks. And... Then I kept on working with the government and everything, and everything was going so slowly. I would go to France, I would go to Ven Expo, and I would go to this and do a master class on shochu. And, and all of these people in the trade were really interested in it. They loved it. They were like, wow, this is exciting. This is so, I had no idea this was a thing in Japan. And then crickets after that, they go home and they drink mm-hmm. burgundy. And I realized, well, we, we're not going to get anywhere unless there's more shochu available overseas. That's a huge problem. I mean, people can fantasize about it, but if they can't get it 
and they can't have it and experiment with it and play with it and you know drink pour it over ice or try and mix a cocktail mix a negroni with it then we're not going to get anywhere so in 2020 march 2020 i i took another big jump i took another huge leap and i quit my my professorship at Waseda University, March of 2020, and started Honkaku Spirits, in, which is based in New York. Um, amazing time for a career to, to give up health insurance, <laughs> uh, right at the beginning of, of the whole thing going pear-shaped. Um, but it was, you know, entrepreneurship is, is never easy. If it was easy, then everyone would do it. And it forced us to think about things in a new way, to think about things much more deliberately, to have a better plan, and to roll roll with the punches, so to speak. Um, Honkaku Spirits is now a little over two, two and a half, almost two and a half years old. Two, it is two and a half years old now. And we're doing all right. We've, we've sort of survived the shipping crises um, and how our shipping costs increased fivefold. Um, from 2020 to 2021 um, and into 2022 but you know it's it's uh it's a I enjoy getting up in the morning because it's all about educating the world about these unknown spirits and as you know I am I'm an educator and I I really dig that I enjoy that I don't get tired doing that um, I can stand at a booth at a trade show all day for several days and just go through a tasting lineup with one person at a time. I'll do it a thousand times. I will not tire or fatigue of that. It's just so much fun to help people discover something new. Yeah. You can tell by your passion, the way you talk about it, that, uh, you know, this is definitely a huge passion for you and something that you, uh, never get tired of doing. Uh, this has been fun, Chris. I, I really hope that this is not the uh, only time we get to connect and talk. Um, but if, if I, if we could close this podcast with just, you telling my listeners something that, that you'd want them to take away when it comes to what we talked about. And if they, if you wanted them to remember one thing, what would it be? I think that, I mean, I, just considering everything that we've talked about today, uh, we didn't really get into the the specifics of any of the shochu. So I think I'm going to just focus on, on life in general. Um, and I think it is important to jump. I think it is important to take that leap. Uh, it, it can be super scary. It was, it was, it was, um, it was scary for me when, when I, I was in education in the States and I realized that I was tired of 50% of my class time being dedicated to discipline. And I just realized that, you know, teaching in a junior high school in America wasn't for me. And it was scary to think about, well, how do I keep doing education, but maybe not in this way. And then I, took the leap and I ended up in South Korea. And then my girlfriend was like, let's go live in Japan. So I'm like, you know what? Why not? Let's give it a try. And then, you know, and, and just, just, I, I didn't know about shochu and I wanted to know about shochu. So I just, I got on an airplane and just, you know, just being, just trusting yourself, just being, just trusting that you're going to figure it out because you will. And sometimes the best discoveries are on the other side of that leap. You know, you, you, if you, if you play it too safe for too long, you're just missing out on so much. So I guess, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of times in life when you just got to go for it. 
take the leap. I, I don't think I could have said that any better myself. I think that um, you open yourself up to possibilities when you have the courage to say, yes, let's try it. Let's do it. And it's not always going to work out. It's not always going to be great. It's not always going to be great to start. Sometimes it's downright scary to start. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're, you're a great example of somebody who it sounds like you just kept saying yes, you kept raising your hand. And, uh, you know, it took you to a place that you probably didn't think you were going to go. Um, I hope your parents are excited about where you ended up, even though it's not quite brewing beer at 16, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's in the same, uh, universe. Right. So, uh, I'm sure they're excited to see what you're, what you're, uh, doing as well. So, uh, thank you so much, Chris. This was awesome. Like I said, I, I we will stay connected. We'll definitely have more conversations. Um, friend, if if we want our guests to find out more, they can just go to your website. Is that the best way for them to go? That's right. Honkakuspirits.com is the company website. Um, and then if you, I, I have a lot of folks who on Twitter will uh, hit me. I'm at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and they'll, they'll be at a Izakaya a gastropub somewhere. And they'll take a picture of the show to list. They're like, is there anything good on here? And they'll just send me the picture. And many times, if I'm awake, I'll just be like, yeah, a uh, third one down and, and drink it on the rocks and, and just give you that that little uh, in. So don't be afraid to hit me up with with those uh, menu scans that you might need. Uh, I do that for people all over the world. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. You do need to get some sleep sometime, but uh, oh, that's pretty cool. Um, and I did notice when I was looking around on the website that there are, even for me, there's some local distributors that uh, do sell some of the products. Uh, so always an opportunity and something that I'll definitely do to, to have a try. So cheers. Thank you. Appreciate it so much, Chris. Thank you very much. Thank you for giving us a few minutes of your time and look forward to talking to you again. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on our journey to learn about various topics. If you'd like to get in touch with the dad who knows nothing, connect with him at the dad who knows nothing on TikTok and Instagram or dad knows zero on Twitter. If you have a moment and you like this episode, drop us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Have a great day and enjoy your journey through this game called life. <laughs>